0: The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News.
1: Welcome to The Views Room, a weekly podcast brought to you by Reuters Breaking Views. I'm Jennifer Saba. Joining me here in the New York-based studio is Anna Shemansky. Hello, Anna. Hello. And on the horn from San Francisco is Gina Chan. Hi, Gina. Hey, guys. So we are going to try and tie together many newsworthy threads in this edition. The coronavirus, the recent Fed rate cuts, and just for good measure, we're gonna throw in the results of the latest contest of the Democratic primary, known as Super Tuesday. But later in the program, we're going to toss the mic to our Asia-based friends, Katrina Hamlin and Jeff Goldfarb, who are going to take you through viral mat clauses in China. So on that note, let's start with the coronavirus. Last week, the S&P 500 index had its biggest drop since 2008, and that was on fears that the latest global outbreak is going to only get worse. Yesterday, the U.S. Federal Reserve made a surprise rate cut. Anna, what was so unusual about that?
2: So the rate cut was 50 basis points, and it was also not at a meeting. It was in between meetings. So, and the last time we've seen a 50 basis point cut in between meetings was around the financial crisis.
1: Again, another marker for the financial crisis. Yes. Okay. Um, so was that, like, how did the markets respond to that? What does it mean, like, in terms of, I mean, I guess, like, what does the Federal Reserve have in its toolkit to actually address something like, you know, a pandemic? Right. If that, if that is what's happening.
2: Yeah, I mean, it doesn't have much, which... Um, Fed Chair Powell honestly said as much. Basically, the Fed wanted to get out ahead of any type of market or financial panic. They understand that basis points aren't going to have any impact on the spread of a virus. Yeah, But there has obviously been a lot of volatility in the markets, and there is always concern that that could start to feed down, get into credit markets, and then actually cause some real problems in the real economy.
1: So, I mean, actually, when they made that cut, the markets went down, well, right? this it, So what was the thinking there? Yeah,
2: this is actually a little complicated because the markets had gone up quite a bit the previous day. And from many people I've spoken to, the understanding is that was related to the idea that the Fed was going to cut, that they were priced, that the markets were basically pricing in this 20 to 50 basis point cut. But then when the actual cut arrived, all of a sudden there was this nervousness that, wait a second, does the Fed know something we don't? And this had more to do with the way that the cut was communicated yeah. rather than the cut itself.
1: So basically, they were supposed to meet soon. And that rate cut was, I guess, expected right. at the meeting. And then they kind of race yet yeah, uh, on earlier this week to announce this kind of cut, which seems sort of panicky in of itself. Yeah. I mean, at least for somebody who doesn't follow this very closely, it certainly seemed that way to me.
2: Right. And it was also after the G7 had come out with a statement that wasn't very strong. So you had also some other central banks that had cut, but then there were some others that there was kind of people weren't exactly sure what was going to be happening. So it really seemed to be much more about the way that it was communicated in general, because this cut was was not a surprise at all. And it is exactly what the market's asking for. Mm-hmm. You know, obviously, if this if this cut did indicate that the Fed thinks that this is going, to, that this panic, that this potential panic around the virus could actually seep into the real economy, then that probably would frighten investors a little bit.
1: Okay. So it wasn't necessarily the message, it was how it was delivered. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk about some of the tools that can really address what's going on right now in terms of uh, this outbreak. I mean when I think about it the slowdown seems to be happening. People um, aren't traveling anymore. Um, People are afraid to go to like large-scale events. Um, So it's kind of pulling or going to their neighborhood restaurant. So it's kind of like pulling back on things that seem kind of wooly and harder to kind of address, I guess, through, um, like, obviously a rate cut. But are there any sort of um, measures that either the Fed or the government can take to help if this thing really is the start of a recession to kind of help get the economy back on track?
2: There are some things. I mean, right now it looks like it could be a supply shock. And when there's a supply shock, that does kind of limit the tools that you have. Although obviously a supply shock can then feed into demand. As, as you said, people are also not going out and do anything, not using services, not buying things. So this is when you probably will have to shift a bit more to fiscal policy. Because as we said, there's just simply not much the Fed can do they could buy more bonds, but again, that's going to help financial markets. It might help people refinance their mortgages, but that's probably about it. So if you're looking at what the government could do, I mean, what would probably make the most sense would be targeted measures, targeted measures to make it easier for people to go to the doctor without having to worry about bills, especially if people don't have health insurance. Those kind of measures that could actually potentially stop the spread of the virus, as well as kind of get the economy moving a bit more.
3: Yeah, to follow up on Anna's point about um, what the administration could do to make things better or at least mitigate uh, what could be an outbreak here is the, uh some of the problems have, from the administration have just been the mixed messages coming out from the leaders in the White House, whether that's the president himself or Vice President Mike Pence, who is in charge of the coronavirus task force. And then the health officials in the administration, from the Centers for Disease uh, for Centers for Disease and Prevention Control or the Food and Drug Administration, who have been warning um, that American communities should prepare for major disruptions to their everyday lives, uh, whether that's school closings or working from home. Whereas Trump and Pence and some others have been trying to downplay it, saying the risk to Americans are. Very low, and and urging people to buy stocks uh, given the volatility we've seen in the market. So it's been um, a major problem uh, in in terms of trying to get a sense of where they're really at. Uh, In terms of any sort of fiscal um, stimulus, it seems like Congress may vote this week on a spending package that comes to about eight billion dollars, which is a lot more than what uh, the White House had asked for at two point five billion. And uh, also a lot more than what the Obama administration asked for, like the 2014 Ebola outbreak, uh, where that came out to around 6 billion. So we'll see what uh, the details are in what Congress could pass. It seems like there is some aid for local governments that will feel the most pressure to deal with this virus. Uh, But um, there's a lot of details that still have to be hammered out and a lot of infighting beforehand over a cost of vaccine and some other issues. So um, we'll see where they come down on that.
1: Well, I mean, one of the things I want to bring up here is kind of going back to the whole idea of the mixed message coming out of the Trump administration is, you know, it seems like part of the reason for that is to, you know, tamp down the panic that's going on in the marketplace. But because it's so at odds with what other people and health officials are saying, that it's almost causing more of a panic because like there is no sort of like central cohesive um, direction or message coming out of the government. And so like I wonder if like how that's sort of playing into these like, you know, larger gyrations in the stock market and elsewhere.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think there is always danger when you have a very partisan presidential administration. I mean, obviously, all presidential administrations are political, right. but there is the danger that in a crisis, the administration is acting for their own political interests, especially their electoral interests in an election year, not thinking about what would actually make the country safer. And not only can that have an impact on the real economy, but it can also have an impact on the financial economy, as you say, which does seem to be what the administration cares a little bit more about. but. They also can't control that and they don't seem to recognize that when, as you say, they do these kind of, you know, mixed measures, it's going to probably cause a little bit more volatility.
1: Yeah, because it's hard to actually know what to do right. other than like wash your hands and not touch your face, which doesn't seem all <laughs> reassuring. Right.
3: Yeah. Well, I mean, also, I think the, the Trump administration's disdain for, you know, just science and facts and technocrats also undermines confidence in their response. I mean, all their budget proposals have had major cuts to the CDC, to the National Institutes of Health, and to other programs. And luckily, Congress has stood in the way of a lot of those cut proposals. So uh, some of their budgets have maybe been flat as opposed to going down. But they did get rid of pretty much the whole global health staff uh, at the CDC. They got laid off, I think, in 2018. They got rid of the Global Health Unit at the National Security Council last year. So a lot of people who had been monitoring this could weigh in on how to best respond uh, are all gone. And we're seeing a lot of infighting now, even just between the CDC and the FDA. Um, The uh, White House has said that any health officials have to clear uh, media appearances and and what they say. Um, So that leaves a lot of questions as to whether um, the experts are are being muzzled and whether they can say what they truly think about what's going on.
1: Okay, so now would be, I think, a very appropriate time to weigh in on Super Tuesday, which was the Democratic primary. Um, Fourteen states, one territory, and Democrats that live abroad all voted on Super Tuesday for uh, the Democratic nominees. And it was a very interesting kind of roller coaster also to kind of go back to the market g- gyrations. But this was also it's been like this primary has been up and down uh, and for the candidates. So why don't we talk a little bit about what happened?
2: This was definitely a good night for Joe Biden. He he won at, at this stage. He's won nine states. He's likely to win ten, and he's going to come out of this almost certainly in the lead with the delegate count and having a pretty clear path to getting the nomination. And I, I would just like you know to remind everyone where we were just a few. Right. You know, oh, honestly, after Nevada, yeah, it's it's almost like after every primary or caucus, the narrative just really changes although now, especially because you've had all of these moderate candidates like Pete Buttigieg and Amy Klobuchar and now Michael Bloomberg drop out, I think we may now have a narrative that's going to stick.
1: Yeah. And I think what's interesting is like Joe Biden's campaign was basically people were writing him off, right? Like they were like, there's no way this guy is going to kind of make it and, and whatnot. And then what we saw were, I think, a couple of, like, canaries in the coal mine for him. I mean, in a good way. A good bird. A good canary, if yeah. you will. So uh, the New Hampshire primary was, I think, a wake-up call or should have been a wake-up call for uh, Senator Bernie Sanders. Because between uh, Pete and uh, Amy Klobuchar, they really, like, had a huge block. Um, right. ma- you know, and and— the the fact that uh, Bernie Sanders' home state was right next door, he should have been like wiping the floor with with that with those results, and he didn't. Um, then also, I think uh, Jim uh, Congressman Jim Clyburn's uh, endorsement of Joe Biden at mm-hmm. the eleventh hour yep. um, in South Carolina really just turned out the votes, which is it's sort of extraordinary to see that that an endorsement could really drive people to the polls the way that it did.
2: Yeah, and I mean, and also Joe Biden has a long history in South Carolina. Like, he, you know, he, he vacations in South Carolina. Yeah. He, he, and he really was you know banking a lot of his early campaign on this race. But, you know, I, I think you're right. I think that endorsement did play a big role. And I think this idea that he was the candidate to back also really played a big role. Yeah. So yeah, I I think you're right that I think if we now look back and we see how well moderates actually did in a lot of the early races, it kind of makes what we saw in South Carolina and what we saw on Super Tuesday actually not that surprising. That all of a sudden, when you're not splitting the vote between all of these different candidates, a lot of the people come back to the candidate they're familiar with. He might be a flawed candidate, but people feel safer with him than they may have helped with some of the other options. And they may feel safer with him than they do with Bernie Sanders.
3: I, I think that's uh, definitely true in, in terms of all the different candidates. And um, and then when that gets winnowed down, you do have uh, a more clear option. Um, it's also just amazing uh, for Mike Bloomberg in terms of how much money he spent. I think the latest from advertising analytics had him at around 550 million and just ads alone. Um, and he... Uh, did so poorly and and did see the writing on the wall and and dropped out but for him to um have that kind of result it really does put things in perspective of you know whether a billionaire can can buy an election and i feel like trump is whether he's a billionaire or not, um, is in a bit of a different category because he was such a celebrity before, but um, really will test, you know, some of the others who had wanted to throw their hat out um, in the past to possibly rethink and and leave it up to more of the seasoned politicians.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think it's almost kind of heartening that this showed that you, in fact, cannot just buy an election, that you do need to actually have, um, you know, a You need to have a base in the party. You need to have been working with voters for years. Although I do think it'll be interesting now to see if all of a sudden all of this money, this organization, this kind of tech know-how that Bloomberg has gets moved over to the Biden campaign whether that could help him not only potentially defeating Sanders, but then also putting him in a much better position for the general election in November. Yeah, I
1: mean, I think one of the um, stipulations with the Jim Clyburn endorsement was specifically that Joe Biden had to pull his campaign together because he has, I mean, at least from the outside, it looks like he has not run a, you know, a a solid campaign until now. I mean, what's amazing also is that he won Massachusetts, which was, you know, first of all, should have gone to Senator Warren because that's her home state or if that's the state she's based in. Um, and you would think at least Bernie Sanders would do better than he did uh, there. So that's incredible. And then also in Minnesota, where right. he didn't even have a field staff. Is that correct? So it's like that kind of says something that if maybe he has to build his organization and hopefully Bloomberg, because, you know, Gina... As we have discussed, you know, he has quite an organization um, that he built up, not just to pump uh, commercials on television, but, but his field staff was pretty formidable, including sending people to America, Samoa, where, yes, he, won his, the, where he got the delegates. His, his one victory. <laughs> his one victory.
3: Yeah, well, and that's been part of uh, Biden's problem is is getting the kinds of donors and fundraising, he needs to really um, have a more national effect and the data analytics and being more savvy about um, online ads, and especially because Biden is so low in terms of his appeal among younger voters, where Bernie Sanders has a clear advantage, um, some of those things that Mike Bloomberg could bring to the table could really help him.
1: This is a fast moving uh, election cycle, so we could be here next week talking about the, you know, how Sanders pulled off, like, winning a a ton of delegates. We still have California out there. We don't know. It looks like he's winning that. We have to wait and see.
3: Yeah,
2: it's definitely far from over, but definitely, I would say, this is the best we've, the best position I think we've seen any candidate in thus far.
1: Okay. All right. Well, I think we'll leave it there. Thank you, Anna. And thank you, Gina.
0: Every few years, um, we get the buzz about MACs in uh, the world of MA, and and this is one of those times with uh, the virus um, affecting all kinds of plans. The MAC is the Material Adverse Change Clause, or Material Adverse Effect, as it's sometimes known. And uh, it basically is like an escape hatch for, for companies that are involved in deals when something crazy happens in the world or with a particular company it's sort of the force majeure of MA really um katrina what are you hearing i know you've poked around on this a little bit are you know are we we primed for a big mac
4: attack in asia because of the uh the coronavirus i think it's perfectly possible um these causes don't have the same history in this part of the world that they have in say europe or america they're a little bit newer to this market but i've spoken to a handful of lawyers who are working on deals or have been working on deals here and they say that they become more and more common in the terms and conditions um and so it's perfectly possible that someone's going to try and use one of them um in the near future because of what's happened with the virus but it's pretty interesting because we
0: i think we've just had the first specific mention of COVID-19 in a, uh, in a, uh, a Mac closet, basically a carve out in the Morgan Stanley uh, acquisition of E-Trade, where it specifically references um, the virus, which is pretty amazing. Um, but these things keep evolving. Well, I mean, I guess, are, are there certain deals that, that that become vulnerable right now? I mean,
4: I, what are we, what should we be looking for? Yeah. And um, the example that you raised is a really great one actually because uh, they've made a specific note about this particular virus but a lot of deals um, have a carve out for epidemics without using the word coronavirus and um, you might think that that would mean that they're safe that's probably not the case because uh, you can also invoke a MAC if there's a significant uh, change in a company's financials or or prospects depending on the wording of the clause. and so if there are targets where there is a really big impact to the company's business outlook, then um, they are potentially vulnerable to to these causes. And I think uh, the targets we should have in mind are those in China, because obviously that's where the the impact has been seen most clearly so far. Um, And within that, there will be certain sectors that are feeling more pain, so uh, the, the auto industry, for example, was already in a very difficult spot before the virus came along, and the virus has, has only exacerbated that. So, uh, I think uh, those are the sorts of um, targets that that we should be looking at when we uh, when we keep our eyes peeled for the first of now, these max
0: Yeah, I mean, these are notoriously hard to invoke, particularly in the United States. These have gotten tested in courts, and they, I think there's only one or two, uh, certainly a handful of cases where they've actually been allowed to be cited. Uh, because in part because the legal language has gotten so tight on them. Uh, but we actually had a, a deal um, out in Asia, I guess Melco, the casino operator, pulled out of a deal, not necessarily
4: citing a Mac, but did blame the virus, right? Yeah, that's right. And I, I think that is a, a sign that it's on people's minds. It's, it's also a sign, um, also an example of another reason that it will be difficult to um, to invoke a Mac in, in Asia, uh, Melco and, and Crown Resorts, the, the Australian target, you might recall, have a, a very long-standing relationship. And um, in this part of the world, uh, executives and uh, and deal makers are, are often very unwilling to resort to sort of legal means to, to resolve their problems. They'd rather deal with it on more friendly terms, and that's perhaps why we haven't seen a Mac being talked about in that example. Um, I, that will definitely be another impediment to, to them being used here. But as we saw after the financial crisis um, in the US and elsewhere, when things get difficult, people look for whatever escape hatch they have. and yeah, money parks right? <laughs> that's right, yeah. And this might just be the, the easiest way out for some. And sometimes it's just, it's not even really like,
0: actually going through the legal process of invoking the Mac sometimes it's a negotiating uh, ploy really right?
4: Yeah that's right so one example we had just uh, a few years ago was that Verizon they managed to save themselves 350 million dollars in a deal with Yahoo uh, by talking about the Mac laws and uh, leveraging that as as a negotiating tool so that's perfectly possible too.
0: So ultimately, what's your prediction? Uh, are we going to see, you know, see a rash of these or what, what should we be expecting? With, I guess you've mentioned that there's something like $80 billion worth of uh, Chinese-related M&A that, that's sort of out there that hasn't closed yet. Uh, what, do you, what are you expecting?
4: I think we might see China trying this out for the first time. It would be a really new thing there. And then you know maybe at the same time, we might see dealmakers in other parts of the world starting to look at the opportunity that they have to, to evoke a Mac. Um, so yeah, there's a couple of things to watch out for a, a first in China and then potentially, a, an even bigger Mac elsewhere.
0: All right. Thanks very much, Katrina, for talking us through that.
4: That's our show for this week.
2: I would like to thank our guests, Gina Chong, Katrina Hamlin, and Jeff Goldfarb and hats off to our producers, Laura Browner, Sharon Lamb, Freddie Joyner, and Andrew D'Antonio. Our final thanks go to you, our listeners, for tuning in. Subscribe to The Views Room and our sister podcast, The Exchange, on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you go to get your podcast fix. Check us out every day at breakingviews.com. And don't forget to tune in next week for another edition.